Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday january 11th forgot to change my type here 2013 this week episode 269 comes to you from studio d we're up in central city pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes joining me from studio c is my co-host the z-man cliff zlotnick Happy Friday to you and to Val and to the listeners. Good day, Cliff. At the controls is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender. Good afternoon, everyone. And I know our technical director is trying to call in from Mexico. We'll see if he gets in or not, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with Dr. Eckhart Johanning. Good to have him on the show. We're going to talk a little bit about post-Sandy remediation, cleanup issues, and a conference on that issue coming up in March. We'll do our halftime, then we'll come back, of course, to the interview and finish with our roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine. Your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, you can listen to the show live, or of course you can download past episodes. Go to the iaqradio.com website, and there's a link at the top that says Go to Show. That will take you to the Talk Shoe website, where you can either download or stream. You can also get us from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have continuing education credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website, for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. The new 2013 schedule is up there. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thank you, Joe. prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correct.
correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Andy Krasowski, Concast Metal Products, Mars PA, for being the first listener to answer the trivia question by identifying Dr. Mehmet Oz, the Turkish-American heart surgeon, author, and TV personality, whose title and surname matched the surname of Deandro's last episode's guest on IEQ Radio. The IEQ Radio trivia question for Friday, January 11, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at their website, www.trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. Name the World War II American aviator who later studied medicine and is best known as the inventor of the first practical mass-produced medical respirator. Back to you, Joe. All right, thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Dr. Eckhart Johanning. He's a medical doctor and Ph.D. and the medical director of occupational and environmental life science and the Fungal Research Group Foundation, Inc., in Albany, New York. He's involved in direct patient care, research, and teaching, and is also on the faculty at Columbia University's Department of Family Medicine in New York. Previously, he held a position as the medical director of the Eastern New York Occupational and Environmental Health Center, also in Albany, and he an att- was an attending physician at the Irving J. Selikoff Occupational Health Clinic. He's a well-known speaker at industry uh, gatherings around the country, and most recently, he was the organizer and uh, is currently working on organization of a program called Safe and Effective Flood and Mold Remediation After Superstorm Sandy and Other Natural Disasters. We have some intro music. Dr. Johanning, are you on the line with us? Yeah, good day, Joe. Good Thank day. you for having me on the show. I heard a lot of good things about it. Okay. We, we, we appreciate you joining us, and um, the timing is perfect. You've got a conference coming up, Safe and Effective Flood and Mold Remediation After Superstorm Sandy and Other Natural Disasters. Can you tell listeners where that will be held and when? Yeah, happy to do so. Well, this is in response to all the things that we hear in the tri-state area about people getting sick and being concerned about exposure to mold and flood after effects. So we decided to do it close to where the problems are. So we're going to be in Atlantic City, a little town outside of it actually, um, in March 13th to the 15th. And uh, everyone is invited, any one of your listeners, I'm sure, Never has an interest in that. Well, you've got a, a really stellar lineup of, of speakers here, and, and 
Some of them actually have been guests on our show in the past. I, I noticed Dr. Harriet Amon was on there and uh, Dr. Shaughnessy and uh, who else? Ed Cross, the attorney from out in California, Gene Cox Ganser, Dr. Ganser out of NIOSH. How did you um, gather all these, these famous names together and uh, get them to decide to help out on this particular conference? Well, and Dr. Chin Yang, we should mention, I think he also was on your show. Absolutely. And a number of other people. I mean, we're still working on the finalizing the program, and we will add some speakers. Um, well, I tell you, I mean, you know, we're hosting since 94 these conferences on Biosol in Saratoga Springs in New York. And many of these people that are now listed there are people who have presented in the past. And we contacted them, and now they agreed to come pro bono to share their experience and knowledge and help people out here. The need is great. It's, uh, you may have heard uh, read in the paper, you know, the people having something they already call it the Sandy Cough. Uh, there are a lot of volunteers out there who are very motivated, I should say, and very engaged in all this, but uh, many of them were a little knowledge, experience, how to do these things. And then, of course, there are professionals out there who are trying to help uh, homeowners and uh, commercial building and small business uh, owners. Um, so the work is out there. Uh, from what I heard from some of the people out in the field, uh, now there are various stages. There are some people where you just can't get to the building yet because it's still uh, condemned and uh, sealed off. And there are other people who got back the power and you now they're trying up the buildings. And there are many buildings, schools, clinics, now business buildings uh, that uh, have no power and you can't do the cleanup. You know? So the problems are out there and the people that come to the conference now uh, want to share what they have learned over the past, you know, dealing with natural disasters such as Sandy Storm. So that's the background to this. Cliff, did you want have a question? Yeah, I did actually. Uh, doctor, in, in your practice, are you uh, noticing a lot of people with Sandy cough that you're treating? No, quite honestly, I haven't. Uh, I think it will come. Like I said, people in various stages there, um, you know, people who are acutely you know, involved in cleanup and are, are not properly protected, uh, they are the ones who are reporting symptoms. I know, and that may be of interest to your listeners too, OSHA just came out with a report and Huffington Post uh, actually wrote it up in the uh, online uh, newspaper there that they went out and did some testing and found that levels of you know, the common OSHA mandated you know, uh, established hazard levels, uh, you know, that the levels are not exceeding you know, what OSHA would uh, label as concerns. Um, so that's one thing. I think that some of the mold and moisture problems is something that takes some time to develop. And it goes back to the question of now, what experience whoever is exposed to it uh, did they have in the past? Now, people who have allergies and were sensitive to mold anyhow are the ones who will probably react right away. People who never had any such problems and now get involved in it, 
that will take some time to get to the point if they're not put properly protected you know, and don't use proper uh, personal protective equipment um, you know, uh, they may get respiratory problems infections uh, cough you know, uh, asthma type problems and it will take some time to figure out what is what you now what's the flu <laughs> that's now very prevalent here and what's the mold and exposure so I think this is a problem that's growing. It's not fully recognized. Uh, physicians are seeing it, but uh, putting in a context of mold exposure will take some time. You know, I, I saw that report you mentioned this morning. Actually, I, I checked into it quickly, and and I guess OSHA is really they're only looking at, from what I could tell hazards that have a permissible exposure limit and and as i'm sure you know and our listeners know that the mold and the biological contaminants typically don't have these kind of exposure limits so my guess would be they haven't really measured for that at all are are you familiar with that at all i think you're right that's what's going on i mean they looked at and these are clearly other established hazards you know that uh, asbestos for instance uh, no lead or other no established uh, no OSHA recognized hazards, and that's what they mainly looked at because they have a mandate to do this. No, and employers have a mandate to monitor and protect the workers for that. Um, but they're not looking at other hazards. I mean, you know, people that listen to you, the indoor air people, they get out, they do measurements. I know a lot of people here that I work with over the years have been out there, and they're measuring very high levels. Uh, one thing that comes up here, and I think that's uh, of interest, and I've been in, in a legal case in California on this, uh, there's an issue related to some of the other hazards, like asbestos, for which we have uh, so-called permissible exposure limits, and mold. When you try to, to dry up a building that has uh, water damage and dampness typically use blowers, right? Yes. So, so when you use blowers and you put that in the wall, and that was the legal case actually in a home in California that was, uh, for other reasons, uh, had water problems and water entry issues. Um, what happened is these remediation workers were blowing up all the asbestos now, in, that was in the wall, uh, in the sheetrock, you know, in the uh, insulation material, and exposed people who were in the building to high levels of, uh, of asbestos. Yeah, so I think some of the technique that people are using you know, can steer up other things that may not be noticeable if you do quiescent testing, you know, meaning you, don't, you go in, you just measure something, versus when you do work. You know, so steering up, blowing things, you no, know, will certainly increase uh, exposures, and that's the concern that we have. Uh, and of course, anyone who over the years uh, did any of your courses uh, knows what's going on will be aware of that fact. But like I said, right now with Sandy Storm, and you know there was a big concert uh, before Christmas here, Robin Hood concert, whatever, they collected money. They're giving out money to people, volunteers, who have no training experience in that. You know, NGOs get involved in this who are not uh, professionally trained and certified and so on and so forth. 
And I think that's where the concern is. And you're right, OSHA at this point looked at what they're supposed to look at, you know, what they're supposed to monitor and all this, uh, but there's more to it. I'm curious, in the introduction we mentioned that you're medical director of occupational and environmental life science and the fungal research group, and, and are they both located in Albany? Yeah. Okay, do you um, get into New York I City? See people in New York City as well, so I see people from New Jersey, you know, Connecticut, and so on and so forth. Um, the Fungal Research Group Foundation, is it's an organization that uh, organizes these conferences that we do every two, three years. That's the International Conference on Bioaerosols, Fungi, Bacteria, and Mycotoxins, the Saratoga Springs Conference, correct? That's right. And you had one in 2011. I heard it went well. We, we tried to catch up with you back then, but uh, we couldn't quite connect. I'm glad we got you here this time around. Cliff, do you have another question? No, go ahead, Sean. All right. Well, you know, I'm curious. I know you see people from all over, all over the world, and, and I, or all over the country at least, and, and you mentioned earlier in our discussion about the workers and the, the potential for health issues from doing this work, and especially those that are unprotected, really don't know what they're doing. I've had a really hard time finding good research that shows what those possible health effects are. I know there was one report I saw recently, I think it came out in 2012, maybe late 2011, that went over the health effects after Hurricane Katrina. Is there anything you can add to what you either know from research or what you suspect the issues are that these people are potentially going to have? Yeah, thanks, Joe. That's a good question. I think over the years we had a couple of kind of summary statements, and of course, you now when people get together and look at what's going on, they look backwards in time. So by the time the publication appears, you know, there's new research available and new knowledge uh, presented in articles. You now we had the Institute of Medicine report, you now we had. Uh, New York City guidelines for assessment and remediation of mold, which was a consensus guideline. Uh, that's actually still widely used. Uh, more lately, we had then the WHO from Europe, uh, World Health Organization summary, um, which I think, and people can look that up on the uh, web or internet, it's called Dampness and Mold, written OU, I think it's the Canadian version, uh, um, and find it there, EU-WHO, I think that's another reference point today. And that's, an, I think, the most recent, uh, more broad summary on that topic. And then we had the paper from Mandel and its group in California and looked at the epidemiology. Now, and then some good papers from NIOSH Morgantown, Jean Cox Ganser, you mentioned her name earlier, Dr. Ganser and her group, and Dr. Park, and who also presented at our conference in the past, and she will be actually in Atlantic City at our conference. They have produced a number of very good papers. And I can tell you, based on the consensus here, and I have my personal experience and opinion on this, but looking at now the general consensus, I think over the years what people have realized and recognized is that the primary problem to dampness and mold are respiratory issues because you breathe it. 
Now you breathe in the spores and the hyphae and endotoxin, glucans, the whole soup of these things. And then typically you have the effects in the nose with sinusitis or rhinosinusitis, which means the nose and the sinus cavities. And beyond this, uh, respiratory issues like bronchitis, which presents as cough, chest pain maybe, uh, to asthma, where people have recognized and have seen that <laughs> since 25 years that I'm doing this here in New York City, seeing people with mold and uh, dampness exposure, new onset of asthma. Most recently, uh, CDC, some patient told me, came out with a position paper, uh, uh, conclusion on this, saying, yeah, people even who never had a respiratory problem can develop asthma, you know, which is reversible obstructive lung disease. Um, and we know that people with pre-existing allergy and asthma can get aggravation of that. Beyond this, and that's probably more rare, and you kind of have to think like a pyramid of this, the rare things on top of it and the common, you know, what I mentioned before, irritation, allergy effects you know, that are typically reversible once you get away from the exposure on the bottom of it. And in between, you have something called hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is like an allergic lung condition uh, where you breathe in spores. It probably doesn't happen you know, with one exposure. You need repeated intense exposures. And certainly flood cleanup can be a situation if you're not properly protected. Uh, that can lead to an inflammatory allergic toxic reaction of the lungs. Now, some people know it as farmer's lung, but it's somewhat a misnomer because it doesn't have to be a farmer getting this. And then what uh, NIOSH found in doing some investigation in an insurance building in Connecticut, and I have seen that in a number of my patients, is a condition called sarcoidosis, which is an inflammatory condition of the lungs with granulomatous, and I don't know how technical we have to get on this, but it's a rare condition. Um, it's not necessarily all caused by mold, but uh, there seems to be a, a association, a strong association to that, you know, based on some research that presented by NIOSH and, like I said, clinical evidence we had for several years. And then I should mention that too, and I'm getting to the end of that list, is neurocognitive problems. And they considered by some people as controversial, but uh, I think there's more evidence in different studies showing that. Again, it's a more rare condition um, where people who inhale intense amounts of high concentration, intense condition of toxogenic mold uh, can have neurological complication that affects the brain, you know, cognitive function, thinking, memory, concentration, and so on and so forth. Um, I should mention that doing studies on this is very complicated because you have to have a big number of that, and I don't want to get into details on it. I just can tell you it's complicated. So and usually these conditions, once you have them, uh, based on my experience and talking to other doctors you know, that followed these patients over the years, some of these conditions seem to be irreversible. So the good news is for most people, if you protect yourself, you shouldn't run into problems. If you do get problems, typically they're of short
that nature, if you stop the exposure, and in some people, and that's not the good news, uh, it may be ongoing, uh, even after you stop exposure. You know, you let me get one quick ODTS. I don't know that you mentioned that. I see that. It was in the New York City guidelines. I think it may still be in there. Could you briefly tell our listeners what that stands for and, and whether or not that's still considered to be one of the occupational hazards? Yeah, certainly. It's organic dust toxic syndrome. It's a variant to the hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And I should tell you, based on the research and pathology underlying both conditions. Now, one would be considered more an allergic mechanism, the farmer's lung hypersensitivity pneumonitis, as the name says. But there's an overlap to ODTS, which is more a toxic reaction. And it's more typical in in so-called farm or agriculture uh, settings because of high exposure situation. If you go in a barn or a grain silo, that type of thing. And I have to say, um, based on my experience and talking to other occupation doctors, we don't see that as much. Now, it's an acute presentation with a short duration of symptomatology and away from exposure. Again, you recover within a couple of days. We don't see that as much. But I think the underlying mechanism of it now, what's triggers that condition is similar if you do a cleanup of a storm-damaged house. And I can tell you, I mean, I'm following a patient out of New Jersey, actually, who had been cleaning up a storm-damaged house uh, many years ago. I forgot the names of all these storms. Two, three times. Now, he really got bad luck. Now, and he didn't protect himself. And he developed uh, a form of uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis and rheumatological problems, you know, which is not unheard of in you know, intense exposure situation. And we think these are not allergic mechanisms. These are things similar to ODTS, the toxic reaction from toxic mold. And we actually confirmed in that situation the presence of stachybotrys you know, producing airborne toxins uh, in significant levels. You know... I- you bring up the the airborne toxins, and I, I I had a question on here of the list that said, you know, water damaged buildings are essentially a, a soup of these biological and chemical contaminants because the, the water damage also promotes off gassing. You know, you'll have more building materials breaking down. You'll have chemical contaminants as well. You may have the asbestos we mentioned. Do we know? And I know you'd have to kind of go case by case, but do we know what actually, what component of the biological contamination causes the respiratory issues? Let's start with that. Well, you're right. I mean, it's a soup or cocktail, I often call it, although cocktail tastes good. Now, here we have microbial compounds, and you're right. It's, I always say every situation is a little different because the makeup is different. You know, it's like cheesecake here. Uh, now, everyone has a little different uh, mixture to it, and you respond differently to it. But the common thread to this is, you know, with intense water contamination of building materials, cellulose-type building materials, we have growth of stacky barges and similar-type molds that produce, and the research has shown it, uh, 
mycotoxin that can become airborne. Concentrations that uh, in animal studies, and there's a group, if your uh, listeners are not familiar with that, PESKA, P-E-S-T-K-R, out of Michigan, uh, and several of his uh, colleagues, co-investigators, have documented in animal studies that these concentrations can cause you know, uh, damage you know, in the nasal cavity of animals and cell destruction and neurotoxic reactions. You know? And uh, we have done studies you know, in homes of patients, so-called sentinel investigation, where we go to homes of people who showed up in our clinic with neurocognitive uh, disorders, and we studied their exposures. You know, and other people have done that too and since that time you know, in Texas, uh, Brazer, that group, you know, was, uh, um, I can't think of the name right now, but, um, uh, and they published on this. So the levels that you can encounter, and I mean, I want to caution the listener, it's not always the case and depends on you know, the circumstances, like you prefaced. Um, you can encounter levels if you're not protected adequately to toxic molds uh, that can cause you know, uh, significant immediate effects you know, on mucous membrane, and the immediate effects would be burning sensation, you know, uh, 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 irritation effect, you know, like a chemical irritation. And beyond this, if that goes on, like I said, uh, cell death and you know, people with uh, neurological and uh, respiratory conditions. Um, so I do think you know, there are some circumstances, uh, and probably if you have repeated exposure, that sets you up for these type of uh, more complicated health reactions. And there's good evidence now from experimental work, uh, like the PESCA group uh, has shown over the years now. You know, you mentioned that the mycotoxins are, are in the air. Are they on a, a part of a, a spore or a hyphal fragment, or are they, you know, volatile? I mean, I, I've, I've always had questions about that. I've never, and I know some of this may be new. Can you kind of go through that for us? Yeah, and I should uh, mention, I mean, this is work and research in progress now, Um but uh, what we have learned over the time is, yeah, it's probably in the spores, and that's typically where it is, but also in the hyphae, so in the fragments of the mold or the plant, if you want, they can become airborne, you know, as dust. And now when we looked at, like, sheetrock and we looked at the parts, you know, that are visibly moldy, and you know the New York City guidelines go by visible mold. Now, we find toxin in the visible moldy area, but we also find from Stacky Botches now toxin that's washed out and it's water, it's not alcohol uh, that washes out in areas of sheetrock that looks visibly clean, meaning not contaminated with mold. And we can pick up some toxins there. So it's probably something that water will wash out. It will be in the fungi itself and it will attach itself to particles and dust. I don't think that the volatile components are really such an issue from a health point of view. I don't think the research is very consistent on that. And, uh, I mean, if you smell mildew, that's the volatile component, and it's probably more a characteristic of you know, active mold growth rather than, per se, an indicator of particular health risk. 
Um, so, in other words, stuff can be washed out, can be in water then, you know, and contaminated or spread to other areas that are not moldy. And it's in the, in the dust that may be settled somewhere and that uh, becomes airborne when you're agitated, when you do remediation work. Hmm. That makes a lot more sense the way you explain that. And I, I know that drywall dust just gets everywhere. That stuff is just... It's amazing what particle counts go through the roof when you start cutting drywall. And and then it's got to land somewhere eventually, so, you know, you've got this dust all over. That makes a lot of sense, Dr. Yohani. We have to take a short break to thank our sponsors, what we call our halftime. We'll be right back with Dr. Eckhart Yohani with the second half of our interview after we thank our sponsors. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Eckert Johanning. He's getting ready for a conference they're going to put up, uh, put on in Atlantic City, safe and effective flood and mold remediation after Superstorm Sandy and other natural disasters. Got a great lineup of, lineup of speakers. And I think the second half here, Cliff, I'd like to do more, get more into the actual remediation issues that yeah, I would too, John. About. Why don't you go ahead and lead that off? Okay, you know, Doctor Yohane, you know, I think the New York City guidelines is an excellent document and really provided great guidance for people that were doing mold remediation. Uh, to me, as a former uh, 
I guess a remediator in rehabilitation or something like that. Uh, I always thought that there was a difference between mold remediation and catastrophic uh, flooding uh, remediation. You know, would you agree or, or disagree? Yeah, I would agree. Certainly, you no. Know, you have an acute situation there, and you take care of the acute issues. And uh, mold is not something that's acutely an issue. It's something, as I said before, that will come over time. And I just talked to some people here this week uh, who were involved here in Sandy Storm who tell me what I said before. You know, uh, in some situations, they don't have power. They cannot work. Some areas, the cops are not allowing people to go in. Then you have the issue of uh, insurance and FEMA now approving and doing the paperwork now, which delays uh, endless uh, reactions, now immediate uh, care and so on and so forth. Uh, but part of flood remediation restoration will be essentially at some point mold, uh, bacteria, unsanitary condition uh, cleanup and uh, restoration. So it's a matter of time, I think, and urgency and scope uh, where the difference is, and it kind of overlaps. Um, but see, the New York City guidelines were not designed, uh, at least initially when you know, we met here in the early 90s in New York City, and they were actually uh, done as a result of... Uh, at Olmsted, Phil Murray, and myself being involved in a building that had uh, rain damage. Uh, and people were sick at the time, and uh, health department we called in, OSHA, and so on and so forth, and everyone was saying, we don't know what that means, you know, and what's going on here, and you know, we need some assessment and remediation guidelines. So these guidelines, you now at the time, were based on and they still are, actually. Now, the most recent one is, I think, revision 2008, on professional judgment, you know, based not on flood on sandy storm-type problems, on residential buildings with water damage and defects, you know, and maybe a backup of sewage water. Now, that's where this comes from. So I, I agree with you. Now, there are different shades and different dimensions to this. Um, now, but the precaution you know, for people to go in this, and I think that's what Sand is showing now, um, now you need to carefully think about what you're getting into. Now, and what they were doing here, and clearly it's a minimum approach, is telling people, you know, get a respirator, get an N95 paper mask, you know, and that should protect you. And I think you know, in that respect, you know, uh, if we look now at the type of hazards that people will uh, encounter, you know, even with acute cleanup versus the long-term restoration and cleanup, uh, are very similar and they're multiple and they're unpredictable in many ways. You know? And in hindsight, yeah, if you do testing, and we learned this from the 9-11 disaster, in hindsight, yeah, we all are smarter, but in the beginning, people run in there and try to help, and they're not adequately protected. You know, I, 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 I really agree with you. I think one of the differences for, you know, for people that do it, you know, particularly with, with this flooding situation, is you, you oftentimes have buildups of mud. 
Uh, and, you know, oftentimes, you know, the, the, the fungal contamination seems to be above the, you know, the water line, you know, where these buildings were, you know, were filled with water. A lot of times you'll see no fungal contamination below it because I guess the bacteria and chemicals and so on and so forth uh, don't provide a good opportunity for, uh, you know, fungal growth to, right. uh, you know, to, you know, to magnify. But, uh, you know, a lot of times, and I, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that they make is, is recommending respiratory protection and, you know, and, and 95 respirators and, and so on and so forth. It, you know, this is, I think they should recommend something more similar to asbestos abatement, you know, uh, very strong engineering controls, you know, strong ventilation. I fully agree. And, and you know, moving air through there and wetting wetting the stuff down uh you know cuz the dust is you know the dust is really really a problem no, I fully agree with you. you know, and that's why I think actually it's really a job for professionals you know people with indoor air quality training and experience you know and people who know about asbestos and other hazards you now uh you know, that's it's my recommendation and I know that NIOS just came out with the health hazard alert OSHA, and I think your listeners should know this, you know, came out in December with a mold, I uh, forgot the name of it, but mold uh, fact sheet or something like that. FEMA has something like this. Uh, and for small, so-called small levels, and this is, goes back to the New York City guidelines, you know, how many square foot of visible mold do you see determines what level of protection you should have. But you know, I mean, if you start looking, you find more and more. You know, often it's not visible to the so-called naked eye. You now, once you start uncovering things, taking wall apart and all this, it's right there. And then you say, oh, maybe I should take more precautions. You now, I mean, you you won't be prepared. So my recommendations are really get a half-face respirator with a cartridge, if not even a dual cartridge for organic vapors. You now and or full face you now and get the proper equipment before you go in there and start ripping things apart and cleaning up things. And of course, if you have nothing, a paper mask is better than nothing. Yeah. Well, that's if, if it fits right. I think yeah. that's one of the whole other, you know, you know, if, if, if it's fitted right. I think a lot of times, you know, these people aren't properly fitted, you know, even when yeah. they get a respirator, you know, and they don't know how to wear it. And, uh, so you're well, right. It's, it's if you ever work with it, you know it's not a <laughs> piece of cake. No, after a while, what do people do? They push it up on their forehead. You know? Right, right, absolutely. And you know, I, I think the one area where uh, you know you and I, I may have a slight disagreement is, I, you know, what happens is that not everyone has insurance. Not everyone can afford to pay someone to do it. You know, so there are thousands of people that are really stuck between a rock and a hard place, you know, in, in terms of doing it. And, you know, what sort of remedial, uh, you know, recommendations can we provide, uh, you know, for those people? And, you know, I, I think in, in some situations it, it gets overcomplicated. And, you know, it, it, when you, you know, you were talking about farmers, you know, you know, what does a farmer do? I mean, these people are pretty practical and, uh, you know, they're also uh, cost conscious and, you know, they're going to go in and they're going to wash the stuff down. And I think in many situations, you know, you can go in with uh, engineer, you know, good engineering controls and, 
you know, you can treat it almost like an asbestos abatement product or process where you wet it down and, uh, you know, you can use pressure washers because typically you're going to be taking out the drywall and taking out, you know, the, the, the soft materials. We're just generally dealing with things like wood and cement and, and stone. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's doable. You know, yeah. by, by people if they have a set of basic right. instructions in terms of how to do it. And I, I agree with you. You don't be too complicated. And I mean, there are a lot of guidelines out. I should mention EPA mold web page has a lot of very practical right. uh, you know, examples and pictures and in different languages. You know, that's important too. Often it's uh, people with non-English speaking people who get involved in this uh, to show them how they. And I think that's the point I want to make here. Educate yourself. Look at the resources. Most uh, hardware stores, I don't want to mention big names here, right. carry it now. Right. Now the suits and the goggles and the gloves and, and the respirators. Yeah. And the more you take and the more you spend a little bit on this, the less you have to worry down the road. Yeah. And I agree with you. I mean, if you're, doing, if you're a homeowner or you're a farmer, you don't have to follow... OSHA and all these regulatory agencies, you do it the way you want to do it. Yeah? And you don't have anyone breathing over your shoulder making sure you do a respirator fit test and all this. Yeah? But again, the safety doesn't distinguish between you know, whether you're a homeowner or a business guy, you know, a non-speaking you know, person out there doing the work. Yeah. Um, and I think we learned over the years many things, and you mentioned Katrina at Saratoga uh, Springs, and it's available on our website, biosaw.org, uh, report uh, from people who have done measurements and testing and all this. Now, uh, the experience is there. Mold is an issue. It's not the only one. Proper protection can help. Mold can come back after incomplete, and I think that's the difference to, let's say, asbestos or lead or other hazards. Even if you don't get every asbestos fiber, if you don't do a proper cleanup on mold, it will come back. If the moisture comes back, it will grow again. Right. Good point. Very good point. Joe? One of the most difficult issues, I think, is going to be, you know, as I understand it, I had a call from a a colleague today and there's some money coming in i believe congress will be passing a bill where there will be money for remediation of numerous homes in that area and i guess one of the biggest areas of uh, concern for me and i guess for others is you know what level of cleanup will 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 occur and how will they determine what level of cleanup to perform and i, I don't want to say concern but i guess a controversy you know some people feel like you've got to go down to zero spores and, and you've got to have everything white glove clean and you've got to um for certain sensitized people it's got to be even more than that can you comment on the level of cleanliness you feel is going to be necessary on these maybe hundreds of thousands of projects yeah so I think it varies and depends, and you're right. I mean, we can't get to a zero level. That's unrealistic, and, I mean, it's not called for. But depending on what situation you're talking about, it can make a difference, especially if you're in a legal environment here. And we will talk about this at our conference. I don't think that anything is set in stone here. 
Now, but if you deal with a senior citizen home, for instance, a medical clinic, dialysis unit, and I'm mentioning examples that I have been involved in, now the level of our hospitals, now the level of cleanup there, clearly is going to be different than if you talk about a barn or garage that you use on the weekend or whatever, now, or boat or car and so on and so forth. And also, if someone has already a mold problem and a health issue, it's immune compromised, and we usually say the young and the old. Uh, they're not necessarily sick, but they're in a higher risk group. Their cleanup requirements may be different than the general population. You know, someone with pre-existing asthma probably needs a different level. So I think that what we're going to have to figure out is you know, a practical way that allows for all these different situations. And, uh, you know, uh, spore counts and mold counts and endotoxin or glucans, whatever counts, are not a guarantee that you don't have a problem before and after. And we didn't discuss that. Now, I think the consensus among experts is, you know, and that may be the difference between acute flood re- uh, situation and a mold problem down the road. We don't have to measure more mold counts and you know, get into a big laboratory analysis of the problem. Once you see it, you know there was water damage, you've got to do something and spend your resources on that. And you, know, you try to lower as much as you can you know, the potential uh, counts and exposures uh, you know, of the visible mold and so on and so forth. I, I think that that is a, an excellent, excellent point. You know, spend the available resources, you know, on the remediation. The deeper the cleaning, the better. Yeah. And you know, it's it's probably better to spend the money on cleaning. Uh, you know, particularly if there's not a you know some sort of health issue, than, than spend it on trying to verify what you've cleaned. Yeah. And, you know, I mean some. Companies come in, they measure mold and say, oh, here's a problem. I have a lot of patients like this now and say, oh, there are certain numbers and now we have to clean up and then they go back and run all the air scrubbers, all this, the numbers are lowest. And they say, oh, the job is well done. They painted everything over, this and that. And then months, weeks or months later, someone comes back and measures and the numbers are even higher than before. I mean, these situations are not uncommon. So... Spore counts or uh, mold counts are tricky. You've got to know. I'm not against it. Got to know when to do them, how to understand uh, the results, so on and so forth. For legal situation, you may need it. You may need it for uh, no public buildings, institutions, schools, um, no, let's say medical facilities. But in most cases, I think the first approach should be, you know, like you said, Cliff, uh, now clean it up, spend your resources on proper you know, planning and uh, doing the work right. Now, and that's what we're going to discuss at the conference, and you know, I hope a lot of people will come who are experienced you know, with that or working on it, first-time mode remediation people, let's say, uh, with the pros that have been doing it over the years. Uh, there's no patent out there that's going to tell you and give you all the it's a matter of experience and resources and judgment. We, Cliff, judgment, yeah, you're right. I'm thinking we should go to Roundup. We've got uh, Dr. Wei Tang would like to step in for just a moment and ask a question of uh, 
Dr. Yohaning, and um, what we can do is go around the table one more time because I know you had to move some things around just to join us, Dr. Yohaning, so we want to try and finish right on time here. Can you hang on one second? We're going to go to what we call a roundup. Okay. Thank you. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move them on, hit them up, raw hide. Cut them out, ride them in, ride them in, let them out, cut them out, ride them in, raw I'd like to start with uh, the roundup here with uh, Pete Consigli, the, the commish, the watchdog. Pete, are you with us? Yeah, can you hear me okay, guys? Can hear you fine, Pete. First, I want to say thanks for helping us uh, pull this uh, interview together and, and, and the other ones you've done in the past. You've been a tremendous friend to IAQ Radio. I want to acknowledge that right now. Any questions or comments before we get uh, Dr. Tang on the line? Yeah, well, thanks, for, thanks, Joe, for that comment. No, I, uh, I, I thought it was an excellent interview record. I, um, I, I kind of, you know, I, I agree with Cliff is that sometimes uh, we don't have the proper balance when we, you know, when investigators and people involved in restoration remediation are uh, specifying, you know, what kind of work needs to be done. And I don't always take the financial considerations and, uh, you know, look at the bigger picture. The exposure of the, of the, <clears throat> the population and whatnot. So I was I was happy to hear Eckert, uh, you know, uh, comment. Uh, you know, you have to put that in the proper perspective because I I think there's language in a lot of our industry standards which which allows that to happen. And sometimes uh, people in the trades um, you know lose track of that. So that was a good thing. Eckert, I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing you uh, in in Atlantic City for the conference. I've um, I've sent the links out to quite a few people in my circle through my REA contacts. I think certainly a lot of the local restorers and remediators hopefully will get some that will show up at the conference so you get a little bit of balance, uh, you know, between the practitioners and, of course, a lot of the scientific and uh, technical people that will be there. So um, I'm, I'm happy that uh, we've hooked up and that IQ Radio can also uh, give a little promotion. Hopefully we'll get a good turnout. Um, do you have any idea... What kind of numbers do you think you're expecting and sponsorships and things like that you may, may be able to comment on? We are open to big numbers now. We want to reach out to a lot of people there. And actually, Pete, thanks yeah, if you helped to put this together today. I appreciate this. Uh, and maybe IQA, IAQ Radio, sorry, may want to come to the conference and do something from the conference side. Now, I invite you certainly to this if you have to see technically how you want to do that. Uh, maybe you can take some questions there and arrange something right on site you now to reach out to the people out there. And I know that not everyone will be able to come, but the information will be important. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, they, they, they did that in the past. I think we did that around an RAA event. I know there's some technical stuff that's involved, but uh, that's a great office. So anyway, thanks a lot, Edgar. Look forward to seeing you. And uh, Joe... Z-Man, great job. Uh, Cliff, I look forward to seeing your blog. I always love your blog. Jeff. All right, sure. thanks, sir. All right. Thank you, Pete. All right, let's go. Let's get Dr. Wei Tang on the line. Wei, I, thanks for joining us. I We were trying to get you on for a full show, actually, but uh, you have been so busy helping out on the East Coast. I know. Uh, I, we yeah, can't even uh, get in touch with you. Thanks for calling, and, and please let us know what's on your mind. Okay, thank you, Joe. 
Oh, Dr. Johanny, big fan here. I read my work uh, for the past uh, long time for the IAQ industry. We all like your work very much, and thank you for putting on this uh, workshop in Atlantic City. I mean, I'm, I'm the director of IAQ Trenton chapter, and we have been working very hard trying to get down. We, we are the professional. We don't know what needs to be done. The problem with this Sandy uh, hurricane is the homeowner has absolutely no idea um, how to protect their house. And the contractor that has absolutely no any training for mowing the edge now, ripping out the drywall with all the mold or building material covered with mold, and they're just ripping them out. So it's, those people have no, con no prior connection with us and has no training at all. And we need to reach out to those people. Uh, I'm not sure how much contact you have to reach out to those people, but IAQA, Trenton Chapter, we like to work with you, collaborate with you as much as we can. We have been making contact with some local community group, uh, contractors who, um, they do a general work, but they are not a professional more mediation contractor. And also some local township, uh, hopefully we will get more audience to come to your um, your workshop. Originally, we're going to host one of our own, but our budget and manpower are limited. But we would like to work with you as much as you need it and get those people to uh, get those educational information. And hopefully, we can reach as many as people as possible. And I also recommend to record uh, uh, and make it into a podcast or webinar so people can watch it, even if they cannot attend the meeting. Because we we need to reach out a lot, a lot of people, not just couple hundred people who can come to a conference and uh, please let me know how we can work together. Great, thank you. I no, appreciate your thoughts and comments certainly and I think you mentioned the word education. I think that's the key word here, you know, reaching out, letting people know about it. Uh, I think with, like you mentioned within the industry, people went to the courses, you know, they they know how to do it. It's just connecting now the people in need to the people know how to do it properly. I think that's important. And whatever we can do to help you, vice versa, I offer that to to you guys. You now um, we need to work in the team here. Well, I appreciate thank that, uh, Doctor Tang. Thank you. And I, what I'd like to do is, I know uh, we, we're running real short, but um, I can try and help coordinate that a little bit and I'd, I'd love to be at the conference Cliff maybe we'll figure out something we can right, uh, right. do and uh, you know maybe the three of us can uh, four of us can uh, get together and, and figure out how we can do that way I, I think it's a great comment and we'd love to help great definitely all right. Well, listen, uh, Cliff, do you have a final question? Because we're no, getting I real don't. Close. Uh, I, I'll, I'll pass, Joe. Okay. What I'd like to do is, um, Dr. Johanning, we always give the guest the last word. Is there anything that we missed that you'd like to add? And, and I want to put um, out there real quick, and we'll put on our website. The conference site is www.dampnessmold.com, and uh, that's D-A-M-P-N-E-S-S mold m-o-l-d dot com any final comments dr Harning? um no that was actually going to be my final comment mentioning website but uh what i should say too is we're calling for paper so if anyone of your listeners has an interesting uh, scientifically based uh study or you no know, research or data available that uh, fits the conference you know certainly 
go to the website. You no, know, we, it's a short turnaround time. You no, know, but we appreciate you no know, presentation that fits the topic. You no, know, so I welcome anyone who wants to present something uh, to let me know about it. All right. Well, I want to personally thank Dr. Eckhart Johanning for joining us. I'm so glad we finally got to talk to you on the radio here and on the Internet. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we had a nice group of uh, live listeners, and we'll probably have a ton of downloads. And we'll certainly help keep promoting. I'm hoping we can get Ed Olmstead uh, to come on a later show in February and, and continue our uh, work with you on this conference. Great. And, thank you very much. Uh, all right. Thank you. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Always a pleasure, Joe. Our engineer, Val Bender, of course, our growing group of loyal listeners. And uh, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. IAQ Radio Production.